0: Welcome to the London Magazine Podcast. I'm Lucy and I'm the Managing Editor. I'm Lily and I'm the Online Digital Assistant. And today we're delighted to be chatting with Kieran Goddard, whose short story, A Season for Every Activity, features in our new August-September
1: issue. Kieran is a novelist, poet, and social commentator. His debut novel, Hourglass, is published by Little Brown. His work has been shortlisted for the William Blake Prize and has been published in journals including Rialto, Aret, and Ambit.
2: Okay, so I'm going to read an extract from Hourglass, um, which is a book about love and loss and madness. Um, the basic plot of the book, which... Um, I've got into the habit of basically saying like, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy loses mind. Mm. Um, and I'll read a short extract from a part of the book that's somewhere between the boy losing a girl and a boy losing his mind. Um, so if it seems like he's acting strangely, that's why. We have neighbours now and they don't really talk to us and they both wear gilets regularly. When I tell you that this strikes me as an important piece of information, you disagree, but I persist. Gilets have no sleeves. Where would you even wear your heart? Gilets are an aesthetic abomination and an affront to God. Art thanks existence by honouring that which prefigures utopia. You know this. We agreed on it. In what possible way do gilets prefigure utopia? And why are you always siding with them? The neighbours who wear gilets have a picture of Noah's Ark in their front window. I presume it was drawn by their child, who also wears gilets sometimes. The drawing has three thick wavy blue lines denoting the sea, a brown boat that is a perfect half circle, a thin orange animal that I take to be a giraffe, and a big rainbow that has so many colours that they have started to blend into one another like an old bruise. That drawing always makes me feel strange one night I tell you that I think it makes me feel strange because there are no dead animal bodies floating around in the water. If Noah only took two of each animal, then surely the flood would have killed the rest of them. So by rights, any drawing of Noah's Ark should show the sea full of dead animal carcasses, hundreds of floating emu rib cages, thousands of hippo jaws and so on, right? I think the drawing makes me feel strange because it reminds me of death and all the ways that we hide it. But you disagree. You tell me that the drawing makes you think about how nice it might be to have a child, one who draws boats as half-circles and gets too excited with the colours when they are drawing a rainbow. Something new takes root in me when you say that, and I can feel it spreading through my forearms. I say the word labour more than anyone else I know. I can't stop bloody banging on about labour. Mostly this is because I think that all wage labour is coercive and I am angry that we have to do it at all. In my view, even the people who are lucky enough to choose the particular way in which they are coerced by work are still being coerced. Because if they don't work, then they die. And if someone gives you the choice of either doing something or dying, then that isn't really much of a choice at all, is it? I know you can choose not to work and claim benefits instead. But anyone who doesn't think claiming benefits is also a type of work hasn't ever really claimed benefits. I've done it once or twice, and it's definitely work. It's a really shit admin job, basically. It's a shit admin job where your shit admin task involves sitting opposite people who have a different type of shit admin job while they patronise you and make you feel ashamed. But beyond hating work generally, I also hate my work specifically. I have never told you, but I sometimes cry on the bus in the mornings. And other times when you think I am crying because I found a film or a piece of music moving, I am actually just crying because I hate my job so much. I once made the mistake of mentioning to my supervisor that I thought all work was fundamentally coercive. I was drunk when I told him that, and I was wearing a paper Christmas hat. He didn't agree with me at all. He said I should use the Christmas break to think about my work ethic. Look, Jerry, I said, it's not that I don't have a work ethic, it's that I think the very idea of a work ethic is a quasi-theological injunction historically leveraged against the working class in order to drive labour intensification on behalf of capital. I mean, ask yourself, Jerry, do you pity the idle rich? Jerry, be honest with me. Do you worry for the state of their unoccupied and workless souls?
0: Thanks, Kieran. really want to know what Jerry replies with. <laughs> um, we don't like Jerry. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not getting good vibes. The Hourglass was your debut novel, but prior to that you were primarily known as a poet. The form that Hourglass takes is very poetic in style. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the relationship between your prose and poetic writings and how they both feed into each other if they do.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, as you say, I started out writing poetry. Um, And that has shaped the way that I write prose. It's not so much that the substance is different, but the way I like to think of it is kind of like a hierarchy, right? So maybe, and this isn't always the case, but I'm speaking in general terms. In poetry, one might put um, the intensity of image, um, or the reliance on rhythm, um, compression, very high on the list of important things. Um, whereas things like narrative, connecting phrases, and so on might sit slightly lower, you know, when one's writing poetry. And I think I've kind of maintained that hierarchy as I've moved over to prose um so for me you know the image the sound the rhythm the music of the words probably sits slightly higher on the kind of um the list of important things to me than it might in a for a you know writer of sort of standard realist fiction so there's definitely um some overlap there and as I kind of joked to you before we turn the mics on um I really think you should uh you know feature what you can't fix so rather than Um, you know, trying my best to become a master of kind of like long discursive paragraphs. I thought I'd lean into what I was good at and, you know, what I'd practised and what I knew could be effective. Um, So that's been the direction of travel so far. As to the reverse, you know, we'll wait and see. I haven't written a lot of poetry since the novel came out, um, but I'm sure it will have a, um, you know, an influence in the opposite direction as well.
0: So while you were drafting The Hourglass, with each draft, did you feel you were having to take a lot out or was that happening naturally? How did you decide what to keep in and what to take out?
2: Um, yeah, so there was definitely way more in originally, which I guess is usually the case with um, with editing. But there was approximately twice as many words in the book um, as ended up in the final version. And I tried to take out anything that when I looked back at it, I thought was uninteresting or unoriginal or didn't have some some kind of uniqueness of phrasing or thoughts in it. And I also tried to remove connecting phrases. Um, You know, so much of fiction is about setting a scene, people moving from one room to another, lifting their arms up, putting their arm down, you know, zipping up their coat, you know, and I kind of think you can rely on a reader um, to fill that stuff in, actually. So, So I did take an awful lot of stuff out and I tried to leave the most intense images in there which was slightly nerve-wracking in a way. I mean, to pick one example, there's a scene near the beginning of the book where the two lovers have just first got together and the the lover leaves in the morning and she's brushed her hair, her wet hair, as she come out of the shower and she's left a ball of wet hair, you know, on the, on the carpet. And after she leaves for work, the guy kind of crawls over and eats it. Like he eats the ball of wet hair and he like observes, oh, it turns out you need water to eat hair even if the hair's wet you know, it's like there's not enough water in wet hair. And I thought, well, that's odd. And I remember feeling a bit nervous about, you know, that because obviously people assume that that's just you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm like pleading the fifth on whether I've ever done that, but you know, people assume you have. Um, but I've had like multiple people say to me since the book come out, oh yeah, I've done that. You know, I've, I've (laughs) I've eaten my partner's hair. Um, so it is about like what you leave in the book. Um, But my instincts are right, people are really strange. It's not just me. Um, So that's been good to find out.
1: Your characters, as, you know, eating wet hair feeds very well into this, um, tend to see the world with a neurotic and paranoid imagination. So Colm goes into the pub for a quick drink before his mother's funeral, ends up missing the entire funeral. And in Hourglass, the protagonist decide to throw out you know, a wooden spoon, a toaster. Um, but these actions make n- absolutely no sense to anyone <laughs> but themselves, But while we're reading it, we kind of, because we're seeing it through their eyes, we read it as a universal experience. Mm-hmm. So do you feel that these actions make the characters more real? Um, and register with readers
2: i i'd hope so i mean that's certainly the intent i do think there's a lot of truth I mean, it's an old cliche in a way but you know that you get to the general through the specific right you know right back to blake you know eternity in a grain of sand or whatever i do think it's that it's that way around mm-hmm. right the more specific you get the closer you get to the sort of texture of what it feels like to be a person and um, which is a deeply strange thing like being alive is a really strange thing like at root um but there's A particular intensity to that strangeness when you are enraptured in love you know contorted by desire and I think one of the things I wanted to do was have a really unmediated um look at what desire does to you you know because it does make us strange and stupid and desperate um and distorts us as well as ennobling us and you know and lifting us up and doing all this other stuff um but I think we we often don't talk honestly enough about kind of how how perverse it can make us you know in various ways and you're not just erotically but you know socially and all the rest of it so I just kind of thought like what if I was totally shameless about it you know what if I had no shame whatsoever um and that's what leads to these like I hopefully quite specific and unusual incidents but um you know that do register you know if if he hadn't thrown away his wooden spoon and his toaster, but he'd like, you know, thrown away every picture that reminded him of her mm. or something. Like I doubt you'd have even remembered that, let alone put it in your question. So he says arrogantly, um, <laughs> but, "You know, you, you get what I'm saying, right?"
0: It's interesting. We were also saying before how, in many ways, it also it the fact that it breaks through this fourth wall as well. It's it's almost as if. You know, like in an episode in Peep Show where you're seeing the world through their eyes, and even at times when they are being really neurotic and and quite narcissistic in, in their behaviour as well, it's you know they're experiencing their heartbreak as if it's the worst heartbreak ever to have been felt by anyone, mm. and and I think it is. It's that very human aspect of the story where. A lot of the time, you you might not even find yourself liking the character, but because they're putting all of their vulnerabilities on the plate, there is that, you know, relationship with them. So when you were writing it, were were you quite apprehensive to to kind of put so so much of those emotions out there and or mm. like, to let that go down? Because going back to your poetry, I think you mentioned before. You, you know you were quite more literary with that whereas in this there is so much emotion was that quite hard to to be quite unguarded it was a, it was
2: a difficult choice to make but once I'd made the choice I think it was an all or nothing right you 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 can't be partly shameless you know I think you have to just accept that the way into this relationship between the reader and the character is through vulnerability um, and through honesty if you can't if if you can't trust the affect of the character of a character like that, if you think that they're not showing you like all of their kind of you know vulnerabilities and weaknesses and you know um, like kinks and perversions and whatever the case may be, like the whole system kind of breaks down. Um, but that is that is quite a kind of nerve nerve wracking thing to do, uh, you know, because we do live in an age where everyone does just assume that you know it's you, mm-hmm. right? um and there's there's definitely a few incidents in the book where um people have said oh i didn't know that happened to you and i was like oh it it happened in my book (laughs) just you know just just to be completely just to (laughs) be completely clear um but also the you know the, the the myopia and the narcissism is exactly right we all think that our particular pain is unbelievably unique and cannot be understood by others and even when you're getting like beautiful kindness from people who love you secretly, you're thinking, yeah, but you don't get it. You you don't really get it. Like, like I think we, we all know that, right? And then there's, you know, there's a kind of cap line in the book where he says, oh, something like, love is wanting someone to have the biggest, most beautiful, most open life. And then you sneak in a parenthesis that says, but only if it includes me. And like, maybe love is actually about wanting that without the brackets without one without you know i want that for you whether it includes me or not um and that's kind of the i guess that's his task right (laughs) is whether he can remove the brackets from that sentence um i mean that wouldn't work as like a you know a hollywood voiceover like man tries to remove brackets from (laughs) from sentence where you you know what i mean
0: Uh, a way into that then to kind of balance out this extreme vulnerability was that through humor the book is also very very funny um and again Mm. we were talking about that like my takeaway from the book was the humor whereas lily's was more you know the The heartbreak. yeah yeah whereas i came away thinking, come, that was really funny um and and obviously you know i also picked up on extreme heartbreak as well um but the humor for me really registered too Mm. um so is that you know a another way as well to to explore you know what was happening and also how did you do it because it's so difficult to be funny on the page
2: I mean I will I'll I'll resist psychoanalyzing you both about (laughs) about about why you each took that from the book um but yeah thank I mean firstly thank you I'm glad glad you found it funny um and one of the things that occurred to me on that level is um you know, I have an academic background in, in literature and I think I'd internalized a bunch of like really really harmful um kind of capital R romantic myths about what literature is you know kind of um and that it's serious it's always entirely serious it's always you know in the existential or philosophical mode um and that it sits quite separately from humor without knowing I think I'd always kind of internalize that um and it meant that there was an important aspect of my voice as a writer and I and I think my personality to some degree that I was keeping out of my writing for years and years and allowing that in opened everything up like writing became easier and more powerful and it wasn't just that the funny bits came in it was like the sad bits were sadder you know the dynamic bits were more dynamic because it's you know partly because of contrast obviously and partly because of the function of humor I mean it's not you know humor isn't I mean, of course, you know this, I'm being rhetorical, but like humor, humor isn't just like someone slipping on a banana skin and falling over, although that is like obviously hilarious. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not it's not just that it's sometimes about, you know, seeing the absurdity or the contradiction in a, in a, in a scenario. And you can often get closer to the experience of living, I think, via humor, because there is a, an essential absurdity to most of the things we do and most of the ways we spend our, our day. Like the French writers are better at knowing that, I think, generally. So
1: So if Hourglass was the chance to kind of release yourself from the constraints of, you know, the canon and things like that, um, and just explore your funny side, what did that look like practically? Like, what was your, what does a day look like when you're writing? What is a a good day writing?
2: Hmm. I I can't do that. I wish I could do the thing that I know is the right thing to do, which I mean, is I wish that about so many aspects of my life. But um, I know that turning up every day and doing some work, you know, making sure you do some work, you know, um, treating it like a vocation, you know, sitting in front of the blank page, you know, fighting that fight. I know that's really good advice. It doesn't work for me at all. Um, It takes me so long to kind of get the taps running clean you know it's less like dirty water out of the tap for so long and then eventually it starts running clean um that i can't do that hour a day two hours a day thing so i do something that's slightly odd and um, maybe that in that way not very useful as advice but i'll try and book like a really crap hotel somewhere where i don't know anyone and there's nothing to do um n- not even as not not even a beach or a sea to look at like it has to be somewhere really rubbish. Um, and I'll go for a week whenever I can and I'll just sit in this hotel room and just write and just write for a week and then I'll bring back whatever it is I've managed to do and then kind of chip away at it until the next time I can go and do that so it's a slightly sort of sociopathic method to be honest but um, that's what I do but my advice would be like don't do that.
0: And also I've read that your interests include pop music and going back to our chat at the beginning where we talk about the relationship between your prose and poetry i i wonder if your your interests as well such as in pop music also have any effect on your work
2: oh massive I, and i can't thank you enough for asking me that question <laughs> um yeah so the so i do i do uh love pop music or music but specifically pop music um and there's there's a lot going on there i mean i could do hours on on that but i think partly it was growing up in an environment where i didn't know any writers being a writer didn't seem like a, a an avenue that was applicable to me or anyone else i knew or anything like that but i knew that kind of like working class kids could be in bands like i knew that like i could see that model and i knew that bands wrote songs and songs had words you know and i knew that those words were move would move people like often on mass um, so I really latched onto that. Like even as a little kid, I'd take my like 10 favorite songs and like write out all the lyrics and then rearrange them into like one, like Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster rather, um, uh, song, you know, with all of my favorite bits in. And then after university, I was in, I was in, I was like a band sort of semi-professionally, I guess, like a sign band where I was writing the songs and, and I loved it. And it took me ages to realize it was the writing that i liked but i was kind of embarrassed to to say that and then i had this really kind of poignant moment poignant for me at least where i think like everything pivoted um it was like the myspace days right <laughs> and um and our record label said right whatever town you go to like write a little blog about you know we went to preston and you know like seven people came or whatever and they were so boring to do that I started writing these kind of like prose poems instead just like observations about these strange places and then we got to the end of the tour once and this woman came up to me outside which did, did happen occasionally and she was she'd printed out like all these little blog things that I'd written and she was like oh can you sign them and I was like yeah great fine sign them so oh um you know hope you enjoy the gig and she's like, oh I don't like your music at all just like, I just, I, I think it's terrible. I just, I, I just really like got into your blog. And I remember thinking at that point, ah, oh, maybe like, I don't know, I don't have to pretend to like play a banjo or whatever to, to do this. I can just sit, you know, sit, sit at a, um, you know, sit at a desk. So there's that element. I still run a website called A Single Song I Love where I write pretentious essays about 90s R&B. And I'm still probably most excited, like linguistically, like metaphorically, playfully, um, experimentally, by music, um, almost entirely these days, hip hop. Um, but it's still the thing that kind of gets me most excited in a kind of really age-inappropriate way as well. It's the, it's getting more embarrassing as the years go on, but I'm not. I refuse to leave it alone.
0: Were you quite a latecomer to reading? Then, what what do you think sparked that for you?
2: Yeah, I was really late. I didn't read a book till I was about 15 um, at all. I was a really naughty kid. Um, I like fighting and girls, um, which I still like, but I've added other interests. Um <laughs> more rounded person. Um, yeah, and they had a, you know, it's really kind of cliche story, but I had a, a, an amazing English teacher who gave me a book. And I remember reading it and just being like, wow, like why has no one told me that these these things exist can
0: you remember the book
2: I can't, I, it's quite an embarrassing moment it was catch it was catch 22 um and it and I remember sort of going to the library for weeks after and knowing like just vaguely that the what were then the kind of gr- pale green like penguin classics mm-hmm. I knew those were like the good books right I was supposed to be the good and I was just steal, which is really bad don't steal from libraries but like I was just stealing these books <laughs> And but but without any discrimination, so, which gives you a really weird collection. Like the first ten books would be like, you know, Kafka, but then like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and just all like whatever Penguin book I kind of got my hands on. So I, I did start really late, but it was I was super enthusiastic once I once I got going.
0: Do you feel then that also touches upon the quite political aspects of your writing as well? in terms of opportunities available. Has that kind of made you, you know, quite a politically interested person also?
2: Yeah, I mean, I am, um, you know, a kind of unembarrassed, overtly political person. I mean, I, you know, I'm furious, as I think any right-minded person should be. Um, I'm furious I'm ho- I'm a- and hopeful. Um, you know, I'd like to make um, a better world where we can live differently, love differently, work differently. Um, you know, not just for people in the future, but also I don't want to live like this. Do you know what I mean? It's like, even on a selfish level, um, it's kind of selfish utopianism, I guess. Um, but yeah, that has stayed. Um, and it's in the book, you know, there are elements of kind of like Wendy, Wendy Brown has this phrase like left melancholia, which is the kind of, that kind of heart sadness that comes with like losing, all the time which is basically what happens when you want a better world like we've you know we've depressed collective consciousness to the point where people like they almost get actively angry if you suggest things might be able to be better you know they're just like don't talk to me about that you know Mm -hmm. so it can be this kind of quite soul destroying um affect to live in um and i do think that permeates you know permeates my writing um and my sort of surrounding kind of activism and activities as well
1: would you like to tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I've I've um I've sold a second novel um to Little Brown again. Um. It's called I See Buildings Fall Like Lightning. Um. And it is. Great uh, thank for you. The <laughs> <title>. <laughs> thank you. Um. And it's uh, it's about five um uh, five working class friends who grew up together. Um. And they had the kind of heroism that comes with that, right? This sense of, like, we will be different. Like, our lives will be better. We won't be stuck in this town. Like, we won't live lives of quiet desperation and misery. That way we all talk up our friends when we're, you know, when we're young. They're heroes to us, right? And then life happens and you end up actually, on the whole, falling into quite familiar patterns that are recognisable generation on, on generation. And, like, how does that affect you? Like, how does that affect the love that exists between between those people. Um, so I really wanted to capture like a, a book about working class friendship that wasn't kind of, it's grim up north, which is, you know, <laughs> um, or, you know, it's grim wherever, but, uh, you know, that also captured the kind of laughter, you know, the creativity, like the the like often like deep eroticism and homoeroticism of those, you know, of those situations as well. Like I really wanted to capture the kind of, like the full space, um, of those type of uh relationships which are really powerful and i also think you know this this is not me going rah rah thing but i also think male friendships are really um underexplored uh topic um not just in literature but in art generally i think there's a kind of there's a great tradition of um books about sort of female friendship and films about it and they're they're often really beautiful but male friendship kind of not so much i don't think um And it's a shame because that has its own kind of cruel beauties as well.
0: Do you think it's because those books just aren't being written? Or do you think it's, you know, the publishing industry itself just not being very open? Like not thinking that these books will sell as well as, like you said, the, the big female friendship sellers.
2: Yeah, I've never, I've never kind of got my head around the logic of that. To be, to be completely frank, because there seems to be two irreconcilable statements, which is that men like to read books by men and about man stuff, whatever that is, like sharks, protein, guns, um, and like women like to read books by, by women. Um, but then at the same time, it's like, well, we, only, we publish X type of book because m- most readers are women. And it's like, well, by your logic readers find books that they're reflected in so it will always be the case that you've got an unbalanced reading public if the product is that you're putting out is unbalanced like by your own internal logic that 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 seems to be what you're saying so I do think that I don't I'm not suggesting there's like a bias or anything like that but I think there is um, a tendency to repeat success and that's not just publishing, that's every industry. And it's totally understandable on one level, right? It's like people need to make money, people need to be good at their job. And the last decade or so has seen um, an amazing amount of often quite brilliant books, you know, by women about, you know, that kind of thing. So I can see why ha- I can absolutely see why it happens, but I sense there might be an audience out there if the books were out there, if you know what I mean. Mm. But it's a chicken and egg question, I guess.
0: On the hourglass is you quite an interesting you know novella as well you know this take on male heartbreak it's that's quite different usually it's you know heartbreak is it's quite a female space and when you were pitching that to your agent and and publisher did you find that they were receptive to that
2: that's that's really interesting because I was I, I think I was aware of that you know um I was aware of myself as a kind of you know like a white male writer like writing a ostensibly a protagonist that is somewhat in that mode like whinging on about stuff you know does the world need to hear that um probably not I guess but um there's something about the abstraction of it and the anonymity of it that I think overcomes that like it's a number of people have thought that the protagonist was a woman for example um like a number of people um uh and it's not clear at various stages that the object of his affection is a woman necessarily um you could piece it together for example there are like you know there are a couple of instances of like erectile dysfunction for example so that clue like the the clues are there but it's I, I don't think it reads as like you know like sad man says sad mad man things you know hopefully hopefully at least um and it goes back to what you said right at the start i think if you if you drop this idea that your perspective is omniscient Right. That you're just like, this is this is me like casting down my, you know, my view of the world. And you actually show masculinity and its brokenness and its vulnerabilities, you know, and its absurdities. Then I think a lot of that opposition sort of falls away because it's replaced by, you know, human empathy, I guess. And. So it was there a little bit, but I I, I don't have a woe is me tale about that, actually. I think people have been really receptive to it and I've been grateful for that.
0: Thank you, Kieran. And now for something slightly different. Um, We've invited our listeners to send in some of their literary SOSs (laughs) and we'd like to ask you to help us out. Oh, gladly. So (laughs) if... If you'd like to listen to our, our problem this time and offer us any insight, advice you can to our struggling, struggling listener, then we'd be very grateful. So,
1: I'm writing a series of short stories and I'm midway through a draft, version three or four at the moment. I hate it so much at this stage. I limp through the words, editing, rewriting, and adding and taking stuff out. How can I fall back in love or even like my story? Is that possible? I also find it really exhausting writing when I'm in this troubled state, and find myself having to break off for coffee, or I'll fall asleep.
2: Yeah, I mean, relatable, yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a few ways to think about that, I guess. Right, um, falling back in love with your work can often be about stepping away from it. Um, I think. You're not at that stage. I'm addressing the person like they're here. They're not, but they're, um, they're, you know, you're not at that stage yet. But you fall, you really fall back in love with it when it finds an audience. That's when you, re- that's when it really comes back to you because you see it in entirely different, entirely different lights. The, the, the. What I would say is maybe, I think it's really easy to spend a hundred percent more time on your story to make it one percent better. Other people might not even agree is one percent better. So I do think there's a point at which you let it go. You know, like I do think there's a kind of and that I'm not advocating kind of like laziness or lack of precision, like I care about writing more than I care about anything. But I do think sometimes it's worth sitting with it and thinking, is it because I'm not I'm not ready for it to be done? You know, rather than it's not done, is it because I don't want to let it go or I don't want to give it out to the world and have it be judged? Um so I think sometimes maybe just just let it go if you're on your if you're on your fourth draft and you're not ready to let it go maybe that's a you problem or maybe like it's rubbish you know it is worth just deleting it sometimes that can really free the mind
0: And I think as we were saying before I I think it's sometimes just the simple question of would I buy this book it, it needs doesn't... to be asked
1: sometimes yes. yeah yeah absolutely That's
0: sometimes the question that yeah it's... yeah
2: it completely I think people always I'm always want to give like a more like or interesting answer to this but like it really is like what book do you wish existed that you can't find in a bookshop like go and write that like just go and write that one so the world doesn't need a another book like it really doesn't like it needs the u-shaped book that like only you can do um it just you know if you're writing just to be another book you know, on the shelf, there's nothing more sobering than doing a book launch for the book that you care about most in the world in a bookshop, which they think is really nice, but feels like a graveyard because you're just like, wow, like four hundred thousand other people have done this thing. You know, it's like it's like actually a really strange place to have a book launch. Um, it's like having a book launch at a funeral parlour or something. It's sort of a really strange vibe. But yeah, I think I think that is the case. Like you know,
0: for yourself then, when going back to when we were talking about humor your use of humor being that freeing moment for you to show other vulnerabilities in your writing do you feel then it, it is almost this eureka moment like, like yes that's my authentic voice or is it you know endless drafts so like,
2: I think I think with with humor you can't draft you can't draft your way to funny right mm. um you, you like you really can't um you know, it, List poems are a really good example of that. It's right. some words in certain order are just really funny, and there's that there's no explaining it. Some numbers are really funny, you know some numbers are funnier than other numbers, like who can explain that but it's but just like instinctively you know that to be true um and then without wanting to sound too pretentious, but I think it might be a bit late for that, I suppose but um. <laughs> there's something about laughter which dissolves itself, right I think like when I'm laughing like properly laughing I'm not sure that I exist really like where am I there like I just am laughter like at that point mm-hmm. like there's no I don't have a future or a past or any thoughts like I'm just kind of consumed by this um dissolution so um maybe I'm just trying to kind of give a real like philosophical overlay to the fact I love gags but like <laughs> you know I do That's I trendy. do but I, you know but I do think there's some I do think there's something there that goes quite deep you know mm-hmm. deep with humor I think
0: so I like, would one bit of the advice be just to try to find that authentic voice right?
2: yeah I mean I don't I, I yeah I think it, you know obviously it varies but I think there's some truth in the fact that you know people say about relationships right it's like they have to be easy when they're easy. Like if they're, if it's hard when it's easy, like you're in loads of trouble. Like if it's hard when it's hard, fine, right? Like everyone goes through hard times. But if it's hard when it's easy, like you're in loads of trouble. And I think if that there's something of that with writing, right? If everything's, like if every sentence, every twist, every turn is a struggle and you're it angers you and you walk away, like I think for like free yourself from that mm. like write like write something new you can always come back to the other thing you know but there's there's freedom in just starting again
0: mm.
2: yeah that's right that's my advice give up <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, no, no, everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks kieran it's been a real treat, yeah, to speak yeah, with you today. Thank you so much. Yeah, and again, Kieran's short story, um, A Season for Every Activity, is available on our website and, yeah, in our new August September issue. It's a really great piece, so please do give it a read.
1: And you can find a link to Hourglass in the show notes as well. Kieran, where can we find you? Um, oh, on- yeah.
2: Um, so I'm depressingly active on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I wish I wasn't, but I am. Uh, so it's Kieran Goddard1 uh Twitter and something similar on Instagram and kierangodard.com for you Know more official things, I guess.
0: I'm also quite sad we didn't get a chance to talk about the pirate and the eye patch. <laughs> that was <Yeah>. also <laughs> one of my key takeaways from the book. Is so many facts, great
2: yeah. facts. Yeah. Buy, buy the book if you're into pirates. Yeah,
0: yeah that's or, a bit of a
1: cliffhanger uh, yeah. to leave it on. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, we'll see you next time. You can find us at The London Magazine on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and online we're just www.thelondonmagazine.org.